Hello and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad talking about everything Farmmaker. Hello, I'm Michael Rashad and welcome to Fireside Farmmaker. Now, this is where we're going to transition into third-party tools, right? Mm-hmm, so right. you guys at Productive use base elements, which I'd like you to talk a little bit about, Mark. There's also the, the first kit on the block, which is Inspector. And then there's also FM Perception, which is, I think those are the three main ones out there. I mean, there's probably some other ones. I actually have one on my website, which is very inexpensive, but it's not, uh, it's not, it doesn't have as many bells and whistles. But so why did you guys settle on base elements or tell me, tell me what you think about uh, base elements and, and how you guys use it and how it's helped you in general? Sure. So I think the thing that I liked most about base elements when it first came out is that it was a FileMaker solution. Uh, Inspector is also a FileMaker solution, but uh, Base Elements went out of its way to maintain itself as a FileMaker solution, whereby you could find, you could sort, you could export certain things. And it felt like you were using just a FileMaker solution to find data. I think they call it, it's, it's a database for your database or your data about your data or something like that. They have a cool tag phrase there. So I just you know, it really when it comes down to when it comes to any product that we use, whether we like, uh, you know, Mercedes versus BMW, this is base elements versus inspector versus FM perception. I think it really does come down to what resonates with you as a human being, what what feels good, what fits your personality type or what you like about it. So for me, it, base elements really felt to be able to go to any field and find by it or that master find at the top right to be able to find even the word like Stan. And it would show me all the places where Stan's name was used, whether it be a comment or a calculation or a script name, it would just find it. And then it would give me a nice uh, curated list that I could click on and work my way through to remove or change the name Stan to Stanley, for example, in, in terms of the schema. So that right away just resonated with me. And then the other things that are really great about base elements is that it goes out of its way to emphasize the importance of comparing two files. So they have a really good comparison report. And it also goes out of its way to identify unreferenced items, which to me as a professional developer is something I'm insanely passionate about because I cannot stand having schema in a file that is not used, that is outdated or irrelevant because it just pollutes the file. It gets in your way, it gets in your headspace, and it's totally unnecessary. So Hallelujah. Yeah, there you go. To even have a single script that's there that has no purpose or not assigned to a button, to me, is is um, is below my standard as a human being. Now, it's very important that what you do when you're developing is make sure you clean as you go along, right? But even if you're a seasoned developer like you and me and Michael you're going to forget some stuff or you're playing around with something and there's an extra field left there. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm, I'm the same way. I can't stand having schema in there. That's not being used. And no matter how good you are about cleaning up, that sounds like a great feature and would make me probably buy base elements just for that to say, Hey, show me all the schema that's not being used. Yeah. Yeah. And it's unreferenced. They even color code it. So it's just really easy to see. Once you run the analysis, you immediately see everything that's um, in red or green or the different colors represent different things. But it's huge. It's huge. And for us, especially because of our company, we have multiple developers working on an individual client's file. 
And inevitably, uh, some developers are neater and cleaner than others. And inevitably, what will happen is that their experiments happen, just like you guys said, experiments happen. People just leave their breadcrumbs lying around. So, uh, which is a terrible crime when you think about it, because then the next developer who has to look at it, they have to sift through all the breadcrumbs that may or may not be applicable to this file. So I know we don't always uh, get to all the unreferenced items in a developed solution, one that's being currently developed until certain time passes. But I know for our products, we're pretty passionate about running it through base elements, making sure everything there is referenced legitimately before releasing it to the public. Because remember, the public has to work with this. The other developers who buy this stuff, they have to work with it and they don't want to deal with, well, what's the script? What's this layout here? I don't, I don't get why this layout is even here. Well, it's also a fact that all developers, all of us included, are idiosyncratic in the way that we develop. It is the way our mind works. And it's very hard for somebody coming into a solution developed by another developer to get into the mindset of that developer. And that's why so often, you know, it's easier and quicker to just say, let's just rewrite this from scratch because it'll take me a month of Sundays to figure out what the developer's done and why he did it. Right, and if there's stuff hanging around and you're going, does this have something to do with it? You don't know, right? You want something nice and clean to walk into. Like it's it's kind of like when you when you share your life with somebody, you know, you, you, you clean up after yourself so that when you come into the kitchen, uh, you can start cooking. And you don't have all the pots and pans from whoever's previously in it in there uh, that aren't being used anymore. You, it's, it's the same thing with the solution. Even for yourself, you need to keep it clean because you might come six months later and go, I don't remember why I put this in there. Why is it in there? And then you do a lot of research and you go, well, it's not being used anywhere. It must have been part of my testing you know, phase or maybe I tried some solution and it didn't work out. Who knows? Well, this is also another another thing about you know really keeping the or, the relationship graph really well organized and structured. Um, I'm in the middle of working on a solution that was developed by somebody, and I have no idea what his brain where his brain was. And the relationship graph was so completely incomprehensible that I had to reorganize the the, the graph just to make it usable. It took me five hours moving table occurrences around to organize it. But before, without doing that, I couldn't have even begun to figure out what he was doing because it was just no way to track it. Yeah, I remember turning down a client. Uh, they were going from six to seven because they wanted me to work on their solution. I said, no, you need to rewrite it. This is pretty common knowledge these days. You don't you typically with a solution that's that old, you want to rewrite it. But back then was like coming up with these, you know, these concepts and, and I'm like, well, this is so messed up in the relationship graph because it was done in FileMaker 6 and, and there was no kind of, you know, anchor brew or any kind of, you know, system for it. I said, I really can't work on this file because it's too complex. And it was tens of thousands of dollars. But I said, it's just so bad. You need to rewrite this from scratch. And, and so, but let's not get too far off topic here though. Um, and let's move back to uh, to base elements and continue that discussion. And and I wanted to point out that uh, that I developed, and this is you know I want to emphasize a point that Mark made. And and I have never used base elements, and I don't get paid by them. But I developed a, a DDR solution, and 
it was the first one I did was a long time. It was probably like six or seven years ago. And I had about a thousand table occurrences just to give you the, the intensity of it. And my approach had been to make all these relationships and all these portals that showed the different things. So you could, you know, look around. And I think what I did in, and this is the same approach I think base elements took on the second version of my, my DDR inspector, whatever you want to call it. I think I call it documenter. Um, it, 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 that product is more like base elements in that you can search it freely. And that's really, I, I think I understand what Mark is saying about why he likes it so much. Cause it's, it's like a FileMaker database. It's not like a solution. Right. Yep. And, and that's just something we gravitated towards and that's our official program in the company. Uh, the other two products are terrific in their own way and all products have advantages and disadvantages. Um, but base elements is the one that we settled on at productive computing. And uh, what's more is that we're going to actually have a training course on it available at productive computing university. We're actually going to train and create training for that product, even though it's not our product. So, but because we feel, we feel that strongly about it, that it would make a great little course for people wanting to learn more uh, about being a develop better developer. Yeah. And you, and everybody out there should, shouldn't take a look at the demos for FM perception and inspector and base elements and decide for yourself. This is just our opinion. If you have comments about, you know, inspector or FM perception or base elements, you don't like it, you do like whatever, feel free to, to mention them below. We, we want to get feedback from you guys. We're just giving you our, our point of view right here. So don't, don't uh, get too upset with us. If your favorite is inspector or FM perception, we're just saying, you know, we, we've got some experience with base elements. We like the approach they have, but there's certainly, features that are really good inspector and FM perception so well if you do get if you are listening and you do get upset upset it's all John Mark Osborne's fault right <laughs> I know I'm the one who's backpedaling right don't get mad at me so it must be my fault right right <laughs> one last thing to say about uh, the DDR um, is that these three products and correct me if I'm wrong all require you to make an XML DDR first and then import it into base elements or inspector or FM perception. Yes, that is. Yes. So that takes a little bit more time, right? You have to first create the DDR, which is not too bad, but the XML version is slower to create if I remember correctly. But then importing into FileMaker and all the indexing that goes on, it can take a little bit of time. I think most developers, what they do is at the end of the day, they export their XML from their project and then import it into base elements and then leave. And then when they come back in the morning, it's all done. Is that usually what you guys do, Mark? You know, a couple of points of clarification, um, uh, we, just to get us all on the same page, Inspector is actually now called Inspector Pro. And I think they're up to version seven and that's distributed by Beeswax. So you can look that up there. And then um, Exporting an XML file is actually much quicker than exporting an HTML DDR uh, by night and day. It's it's almost light speed to export by comparison. The HTML takes a long time to export if on a large solution. Um, but to your point, yes, all three of them need the XML version of the DDR. And importing it varies based on the product. In fact, FM Perception, one of its claim to fame is that it's super fast analyzing and chewing on that DDR. I mean, like light speed, because it's a dedicated application. So it chews on it differently. It doesn't have to import the data in the same way. Uh, whereas base elements, it has to import all that data. And I believe in Inspector, it also has to import all that data more directly to get it into a FileMaker solution. So basically backing up what you said, 
um, importing it into these tools is a little longer than it would be just a straight export into the HTML. But at the end of the day, what you get on those tools are amazing. With FM Perception being the one I think has the claim to the fastest um, the fastest analysis to the point where you have your XML export and you're ready to work with it and analyze it. I think that's where uh, Todd and his company, um, Todd Geist, uh, that's the claim to fame to FM Perception. Well, the other thing is also with FM Perception, and I have a license for that, uh, is that you can export a new summary, XML summary file at any time and literally it's instantaneously updating so it is incredibly quick but it's not the most intuitive solution and it requires a lot of time spent to really get to grip with it and make the most of it and i think the base elements from what i've seen of it is much more uh, friendly to um, to farmmaker developers than than FM Perception, but they're both fantastic products. I haven't used Inspector, so I can't talk about that. But Vince Manano is one of the really smart guys in the community, and uh, pretty much everything he does is going to be top notch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all three all three companies, all three products stand on their own, and that's why they're they've been around for so long. And I think it's a matter of whether you like BMW, Mercedes, or you know, pick your brand, look at your uh, features of each, uh, look at the pricing, and then decide what, what works best for you. And in some cases, people have uh, more than one. Okay, I think we've talked about uh, all these uh, DDR analyzers uh, quite a bit, and uh, you really just need to go out there and look for yourself, download the demos, and try it out. What's next on our list is a bunch of third-party apps. They're probably lesser known to some degree. Um, some are well-known, but uh, we're going to talk about those, and this is going to become the Mark La Rochelle show uh, from from here on in, right? Because he he knows more about this stuff. So, so let's talk about the network link conditioner that you mentioned in this outline. And let's, we'll just hand over the mic. I'll just mute myself and Michael, you can mute yourself too, so. <laughs> now you guys will have questions That's the moment I true. start going through this oh. stuff. Oh, no, go ahead, um, sorry. Network link, <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> so network link conditioner is a fantastic little utility for the Macintosh only, and it actually is bundled with Xcode. Xcode, as you know, is the official programming development environment for anyone who programs on a Macintosh. Uh, Xcode is, is the tool of choice. In order to get Xcode, you have to pay $99 a year to become a part of that developer community. And then within that, you download Xcode. And then inside Xcode, there's a little folder. And inside that folder, there's this little gem called Network Link Conditioner. And it's something that runs in your Macintosh preferences pane. And it allows you to spoof a lousy network. And when I say spoof, it can it can say, okay, do I want to be on 3G versus you know 4 LTE? Uh, do I want to have introduced latency? You can actually dictate the latency, and you can put all these little parameters in there. It's pretty easy to use. And then once you turn it on, your network from you to the internet becomes really terrible, and that can be good if you are trying to develop something over the wide area network under non-ideal conditions. Let's say a customer asks you and says, okay, I want to develop a solution. I'm going to be running it from uh, overseas and Asia somewhere, and I want to host it from Texas. 
can you build me a system that's going to be conducive to that? So you might not have the ability to test that. I mean, that's really difficult to test in most cases without you know, setting up a server in Texas and having someone go to Asia and test it for you. Um, so this network link conditioner can do that. And that's why Apple created it so that you can test that. And I believe there's also a version that runs on your iOS device as well. So it's a nifty little thing that you can play with. And although we don't use it terribly often, it can come in handy on those days that where customers really want to be assured that you've tested it under crappy conditions or long range conditions. So that's network link conditioner. Any questions on that, guys? That's pretty straightforward. Yeah, you make it sound so simple, Mark. <laughs> well, it is once you get access to the tool, but you know you do have to pay for it if you're going to be part of the you, know, you download Xcode and all that. So you know, at the end of the day, you're probably talking an hour or two by the time you get your hands around this and actually have it installed on your Mac. But it's something that I actually plan on making a. I'm going to make a YouTube video on it because these little things excite me for some reason. And um, they're so unknown by, the, by most people. This is not a little thing. I mean, knowing how your solution reacts on a slow connection is very important to have and to know if your solution reacts well before you give it to the people who are gonna be using it. So I don't think it's a little thing that gets you excited. This can really save your bacon, right? Yeah, it can make the difference. It really does identify, oh my gosh, I can't put that calculation on this list view because it's going to kill the system. So I've got to find a workaround. It also makes you look like a hero to say, well, this is WAN optimized and I've tested it against a 3G with X amount of latency. Oh, really? Yeah, I did. I tested. I have a tool that does that. Oh, cool. Oh, no, don't tell them about the tool. Just tell them you went <laughs> went to a special area where there's only 3G and tried right. it out. <laughs> so... It's a good example of working smarter, not harder, perhaps. So the next tool uh, is called Reflector. Now, I have actually used Reflector quite a bit, and I'm not a big fan because I've had a lot of problems with it. I stopped using it about five years ago and went to QuickTime. But the idea behind Reflector is to emulate your iPhone or your iPad on your Macintosh so you can go ahead and see what's going on. I often use it uh, for videos so I can show what how to program something for the iPad or the iPhone. Uh, but I've switched to QuickTime, which allows you to, to actually emulate that also. Um, so if you've got QuickTime, uh, you just connect your iOS di device via a USB. You open QuickTime, you go to the file menu, choose new movie recording, and then you select the dice device from the dialog that displays. It's pretty easy to do. And then all of a sudden, bam, your iPhone is on there and everything you do, you see happens on there. Now, Reflector is the same product. And now it's got Windows and Mac, which is nice. I, I believe this QuickTime thing should work on Windows also. I have not tested it, but I, I just... I. I I've had problems with it where it didn't quite work and they may have worked them out since then. You know, what, what's your opinion, Mark, of, of Reflector? Well, they've come a long way. In the early days, I think the software was a bit buggy and you'd, you'd be getting updates and it wouldn't quite work and it would come disconnected in the middle of something. So yeah, it was not necessarily the, the, the best experience in the early days. I think they've come a long way. They've certainly invested a lot. They've been around for a while. So I, I like it for that reason. I think I don't know if QuickTime allows you to have a screen within a screen. In other words, with, with this reflector and its mirroring capabilities, I can do a screencast where I'm recording my screen. And on the left side, I've got FileMaker client. And then on the right side, I've got my iPad being reflected. 
then we, that way I can show both. So I can say, see what happens when you add it in FileMaker client? Here's what it will look like on your iOS device. And I've got that on a single screen. I don't know if QuickTime can do both at the Most same definitely. time. Okay, so it can. So QuickTime is certainly the answer. And actually, it would be free with QuickTime. And I, there's a paid part of Reflector. Um, but then Windows, we, we have to see if it works there. And then there's all kinds of adjunct features that the reflector has uh, in addition to straight reflecting like like we see in QuickTime. But yeah, I think just kind of check it out, see if it's something that, that you need or not. It's something that we've used in the past, we currently use as far as I know. But this area, this whole landscape is continuing to change, especially with more people working from home and things. Um, this landscape is definitely changing. Now, can you give us some examples of how you use it in development? Because I usually use it either to demonstrate to a client what it looks like, but mostly for my videos, I'm not sure how useful it is inside a completely just development uh, arena. When it comes to development, I don't think it's as useful as it is for recording your screen. In development, we just have developers use an actual iOS device. So that's, I mean, that's the best way to do it, in our opinion. So sometimes if you're recording a video for a customer, it might be handy to do that. Oh, yeah. Training videos, training videos, customer demonstrations. Sometimes you're on a GoToMeeting, you can throw up Reflector while GoToMeeting is running. And there it is. There's my iPad. And you're giving now a, a live demonstration of your iPad because it's reflected on your screen. I think when it comes to QuickTime, I'm not sure if it can reflect without also recording. So that might be a distinct difference there between why you'd want Reflector versus QuickTime. That's a good point. I don't. I uh, I have recorded it uh, through my videos, but I have not done it on GoToMeeting or something screen sharing app like that. But it's it's worth it. I mean, again, we're trying to point you guys out to some of the things you can use. You may not even known Reflector was out there, and it may have some features that you know is are great and and you know much better than QuickTime. So who knows? Yeah, and it can be done wirelessly too. So it uses your network, your Wi-Fi network as a mechanism mechanism to connect with, whereas I think QuickTime and some of the other recording tools require an actual hardwired connection. Exactly. Yeah. So there's one big obvious difference. QuickTime requires you to use a USB connection to make that work. Yeah. So the one thing that I will um, just mention, and I've mentioned this in previous um, things about making videos, I make a lot of videos and when I'm working on a solution, I'm documenting every single thing that's going on. So the customer's got a video to teach them. And what the video does is help me isolate the areas where there's a problem. And when I say that is I'm doing a video and something doesn't work properly, that's when I spot it because I'm now as a user instead of a developer. And I think that that's where it's really and incredibly useful. Absolutely. I think Mark uses it quite a bit. I use it on occasion when there's an issue where I've told them how to use something. They go, oh, well, I don't get it. Um, but videos are great. I think you probably use it the most. They can, I mean, a, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Oh yeah. I love video. I love, 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 love. Yep. Okay. Well, let's move on to uh, code editors. I'm, I'm sure that, uh, most of the people out there listening, uh, know that FileMaker can be custom web published and you therefore probably need some type of code editor in order to program or edit that 
code that's going on the website that's contacting FileMaker and putting it up uh, for everybody to see out there in internet land. Now, I personally am real, real old school, and I've used BBEdit. Um, I have forever. I, I, I type my HTML in. I don't want any GUI interface, so call me old school, but I, I, it just makes me feel good to get down into the code and, and be able to, to touch everything, and, and that's what I use. But uh, I think that other people have probably gotten with the, with the, the current uh, decade and, and, and started using other tools out there. Um, what are some of the ones you guys use over there, Mark? The, the tools that come up are brackets, BB edit, uh, sublime text, and then Atom is a program or product for web programming. Um, of those, I don't really use any of those. I don't do much custom web development um, personally, so I don't actually use any of those per se, uh, but the team does heavily. And I think out of the four that I've mentioned, I think brackets is uh, most people's favorite. It allows color coding and things like that. But essentially, BB Edit was, you know, in my mind, the first kid on the block when it came to advanced text editors. So you might want to tell us why you would use BB Edit over just text, a regular text editor like Notepad or, you know. Oh, searching and replacing mostly. Um, searching and replacing multiple files um, when I didn't program HTML very well and I had to go ahead and replace something on a whole bunch of pages rather than putting it as a, as a uh, sub page. I don't do this very often. So so I don't program HTML or, or uh, I almost called it CDML, um, PHP very often. So I don't do it too often, but um, I guess the reason I use BBEdit mostly is because I'm comfortable with it and I don't do it very often and I haven't had a reason to look at anything uh, it hasn't not done what I wanted to do, and so I stick with it. And it's it's on my computer, and it works, and I'm happy. Um, if you're getting into it, though, you want to make sure that you know that there's a lot of choices out there, uh, other than just a word processor or these GUI-based products, um, such as brackets, which I think your team told you was probably your, their favorite tool. I'm not even aware of that one. What is that? Um, it's basically like BB Edit, but probably a newer company I'm, I'm sure it's all um they claim a modern open source text editor that understands web design and then you can download brackets and it kind of looks like bb edit when you look at it but i'm sure it's got features that bb edit doesn't have and vice versa and there's some features about bb edit that i hate <laughs> like sometimes it tries to correct what i'm typing i'm like no that's what i want stop right. correcting it but i have the same problem with my iphone yeah. too so yeah talking, talking about that i had a very funny um, incidents of autocorrection. I would I sent a text saying that EasyJet was shutting down all flights to and from Spain, hmm. and it trans it changed it to EasyJet is shooting down all flights to and from Spain. Right. Yep. Yes, it's autocorrect. So on the next uh, Mark La Rochelle. Uh, bullet point here. He has API testing tools. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh, how you guys use this in, in a general way. We don't need to get into too much detail. Sure, sure. Well, I think um, perhaps the most popular tool for API testing slash experimentation slash learning is the tool called Postman. 
it's all one word, P-O-S-T-M-A-N. And you'll hear that throughout the community. A lot of people use that. And it's a neat environment specifically to work with APIs because it's got predefined tools in it and features that make it very relevant to handling APIs today, such as token management and variables. And you can create these things as templates and you can fire these APIs off in a certain order. And it, it really is almost like, think of it as like, almost like having a FileMaker application, specifically where FileMaker builds databases and solutions. Uh, Postman builds sort of an API solution. You can actually say, okay, this API uh, is, talks to, let's say, Dropbox. And all of your mechanism within the Postman can be configured in and around Dropbox. And you can save things and you can mix and match how the code works. It just makes it a lot friendlier to build than perhaps any other tool. Um, there are Now, I've talked to the developers on our team. And they say Postman is great to experiment, to test, and to learn. But when push comes to shove, when we get advanced to the point where our FileMaker system now talks to, let's say, Dropbox, and we've got built-in templates, at that point, they don't even go to Postman. They just go right to FileMaker and use a predefined script and say, OK, this script handles all the token management and the authentication and the preliminary data gathering and then various subscripts. It'll come in, and they won't even use Postman at that point because we would ha already have a solution built in FileMaker to handle the back and forth with any given API. So, but Postman is a great little learning tool. It's how I learn, uh, how I learned to work with APIs, although I'm not an expert by any means, but it does allow you to experiment with the basics. Yeah, I think uh, one other product just to mention, Insomnia was mentioned by Wim DeCourt, which is, if you know FileMaker, you should know the name Wim DeCourt. He's famous. Uh, and so he likes that particular product. So if you're looking out there and you need an API testing tool, look at Postman and look at Insomnia also. Yeah, but I think, I think, we, have to, I think we have to interject a point here that Wim DeCourt is so far ahead of 99% of us that it's almost like talking to a superhuman from another planet. <laughs> well, it's the same as talking to Ray Culligan. He's a super genius, you know, like a good thing he's not evil or he'd take over the world, you know? So right. there's a couple of people in the market like that, that you go, everything that comes out of his mouth is gold. I'm like, how do you do it? Um, how do you know so much? And it's just, you know, they're just, they're just smarter than the rest of us, I guess. So. Well, the, talking about Ray Culligan and, change the subject completely. He's also an amazing artist and he does the most extraordinary wood sculptures that you've ever seen in your life. I yep. mean, breathtaking stuff. Yeah, he's got an eye for detail, for sure. Yeah, FileMaker's yeah. just a sideshow for him, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you get That's a you, chance yeah. to talk to either of those guys, Wim DeCourt or Ray Culligan, uh, you know, Go to DevCon, you'll probably see them there. They, those guys will bend your ear with some good information. They're nice guys too. They're not, uh, you know, they're yeah. not those genius guys who are who are kind of, you know, by themselves and don't want to talk to anybody. They're really personable guys. True. Okay, so I was just saying the next uh, point on uh, Mark La Rochelle's uh, visit through the tools is SQL Pro. Yeah. And SQL Pro is, is more for people who want to work with an ODBC data source. So an example of where you would use this, um, there's a 
portion of our certification course, as you guys know, there's, a, there's quite a few questions on the certification test dealing with ODBC slash ESS. And not only are those test questions fairly difficult, but what makes it even worse is that we very rarely run across these technologies as developers on a regular daily basis. Sometimes these are edge cases when a customer actually says, okay, I want an ENS, ESS connection with this, that, and the other. Now, perhaps for the larger companies like us, we do get those questions from time to time, but for your typical developer, they barely know what ODBC is. So we created a portion of our certification course that talks about setting up an ODBC source on Amazon AWS, and then using SQL Pro as your interface to make schema changes. In other words, SQL by itself, the database, MySQL or Microsoft SQL Server, they're just nothing but buckets of data. They don't really have interface. You actually have to construct interface. So SQL Pro is sort of like the FileMaker front end of it. You can create tables, you can add data, you can make relationships and things like that. So that's what I use to manipulate the data. Once I have an ODBC source on Amazon, a bucket of data, I use SQL Pro to create records and all the other things that give you a fighting chance to do something with it. And then of course, FileMaker, you make the direct ESS connection in FileMaker, and then you can do similar things. But SQL Pro gets you started, and that's a tool that I think would be handy. Uh, and the SQL Pro that I'm talking about is the free, this is a free piece of software, and it runs on Macintosh only. I do have an equivalent, uh, something similar. It does cost a little bit of money, but it's fairly low cost. It's called Navicat, N-A-V-I-C-A-T.com. is another piece of software that's been around forever and works on Windows or Mac and becomes a ODBC uh, SQL source editor of sorts. So those are neat tools if you want to explore that world. Yeah, I remember working with uh, ODBC on a project quite a few uh, quite a few years ago, and and uh, yeah, I I generally don't uh, work with ODBC. Uh, there's not a big need for it, and but if 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 I did, I would probably look into this tool for the next time. I've I've learned something here myself, so. Good. Michael, you were going to say something? I was going to ask, um, in the notes, we've got SQL spelled out as SQL. Is it SQL Pro or is it SQL Pro? It's spelled out. It's spelled out S-E-Q-U-E-L-P-R-O.com. Good. Thank you. Okay, well, I'm not sure even what your next point is because I'm just not in this world. Um, so I'll let you just introduce the point here, Mark. So uh, we use AWS for hosting FileMaker. That's primarily what we use it for, but it, it can also be a terrific playground for your typical developer. When you need to deploy tools that you could otherwise not have an easy way of doing. Let me give you one big example. Let's say you're a Mac only developer. Uh, and you need access to a Windows machine. The choices are Bootcamp, which is sort of touch and, touch and go these days. It's hard to say whether that's still supported or whether that's going to happen. You could get Parallels. You could get Fusion. Uh, you can do so those emulators there. Or you can somehow deploy a Windows machine and get remote access to it. And I think that's the preferred way nowadays that I like, which is I'll spin up an AWS Windows box so that I can use it for 
development in the Windows world. So that is number one, long pause after I said that. Then the other advantages of AWS is that you can create an ODBC data source, like I mentioned earlier. And you can also incorporate other things like S3 and some of the other modern technologies in, on the IT side of things that customers will sometimes ask you about, want to know more about how do we incorporate this with that. And AWS is a playground. There's almost nothing you can't set up on AWS in some form or fashion. Not saying it's easy. It's definitely developer centric. Um, but that company in particular uh, is very friendly to the development environment. Why? Because they allow you to start at no or low cost for just about all their tools. Everything is on demand. And the first year of your AWS experience is essentially free. They give you all the basics for free for a whole year. And then as you develop and get better, you'll pay for only what you need. The only addendum I will make to that, Mark, is, and you made it, is that it's very technical. And if you're not technically inclined, it's like the worst migraine you can ever have. Yeah, it's so technical that we created a course specifically for developers who don't even know how to spell AWS. And I say that kind of funny. It, it's called uh, FileMaker. It's called AWS for FileMaker Developers. And it's, it's a very, it's about an hour long course or a little longer. And I take you through the journey of creating that AWS account and getting you oriented with that world. Um, so it can be extremely helpful if you know you want to get into it, but you're a little intimidated or don't really have the time to learn it from scratch using a bunch of random videos on YouTube, that course will come in handy for that. Yeah, that's, that's it. AWS is something we believe in. And why do we choose AWS? I think a large part of it was because FileMaker chose AWS as their platform to do FileMaker Cloud. So we figured, well, if we use AWS for our own services, we'll be in tune with the platform that we are, you know, our base our livelihood on, which is called Claris. Now, the next subject is something that uh, I can talk about. Uh, and that's screen capturing and, and built-in screen capturing with your operating system is really not going to do it. If you've ever used Snagit or Snaps Pro, even though Snaps Pro sadly is dying, I don't know what happened to the product, but they're so much more useful. And you think, well, how would I use those in my development environment? Well, if you're making a manual, you can take a screenshot. If you're trying to point out something to one of your clients and, and, a, and you don't want to do a whole video, just think a screenshot will do that. It's great. Or even for your own use, you can, I mean, I'm taking screenshots all over the place. So you need to have a tool you can rely on and gives you a lot of different options, such as one of the things I love about Snap Pro is that I, I can easily go in there and put kind of drop shadows on the back of it and things like that. I use that all the time. And uh, I, I love the product. I wish the, it hadn't gone away. I, I used to use it to record all my videos. Now I had to, to move to ScreenFlow. But um, what do you like about Snagit? Oh, well, I, I love the fact you can put the, you can annotate the document very easily. Different types of uh, tools that you can use, callouts. Um, you can outline areas. You can use different colors. To me, I used to use Snap Pro, Snaps Pro like you, John, but I just got to a point where I got tired of it and there were, they weren't keeping up and I didn't realize they were discontinuing or losing interest in it. But I use Snagit Pro all the time now and it's one of the best investments you can possibly make, in my opinion. But I don't use it for video. I only use it for screen capture 
for video, I now use Camtasia for Mac as opposed to ScreenFlow, which I used to use, but I like Camtasia better. Good. Uh, we use Snagit for a company-wide. It's an official program that all developers and uh, people have access to. Besides the things that you guys use it for, uh, screenshots, I've got one employee using it as a library repository for all our graphics. In other words, she will snag an image or grab a logo, and she'll tag it in Snagit, and it becomes a full-featured, searchable library of graphics right there on her computer. So terrific use of it there. Uh, here's a hidden feature, guys. You can snag something that you can not copy. So many websites these days will have a bunch of text, like a serial number or something like that, and you want to grab it to your clipboard, but there's no way to copy it from a website or from an application. You can snag an image, right-click, grab text, and it'll OCR that little snippet of text and produce text that you can copy to your clipboard. I use that daily. That is pretty cool. Now, what about uh, videos in Snagit? Do you ever use that? Our staff does. Uh, typically, we don't ask our staff to do training videos, full-featured training videos that we'd produce on the university. For that, we use ScreenFlow. But for um, four-minute videos to a customer to explain something, yes, because we already own Snagit, obviously, we'll use the Snagit video capabilities for a, a staff member or a developer to send to a customer. Now, why is that just because ScreenFlow has more editing features or? Why do we use ScreenFlow versus Snagit yeah. for, for doing? Oh, just uh, curious. yeah, I think ScreenFlow is, well, ScreenFlow is a full featured video, you know, editor and screen capture, you know, thing very, very much like Camtasia in that way. But yeah, the, the power and the tools that you get with ScreenFlow uh, far surpass any of the editing tools you can do in Snagit from a video standpoint. Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot of editing tools. And, and that's one thing I didn't get with Snaps Pro. It had all the settings for the input and the output and stuff like that, how to save it. And it was great. It did all I wanted to. But what ScreenFlow has is the ability for me to edit before I save it out to one of the formats that I'm going to put on YouTube or uh, Udemy or wherever I might share that information. Um, there's a lot of uh, post-processing you can do with it. Correct. Yeah, I use ScreenFlow daily hours and hours a day I'm, I'm in that program creating university content or what have you for youtube now michael you like camtasia better is there is there and you've used both screenflow and camtasia is there a couple of features that really made camtasia a better tool for you yeah i can't answer that john um because i don't remember i just know that i used to use screenflow and then somehow i've discovered that camtasia had a mac version and i tried it and i really liked it and i i don't think it's there's anything you can say it's better or worse than screenflow i i guess it's just because i'm so familiar with it now it's fast for me to use it and i am not familiar with screenflow anymore because i haven't used it for years so you like the interface basically, and that's a big plus. If you if you if it makes sense to you, it's natural. That's a big reason to look at all these different products and find out what works best for you. So ScreenFlow is not the only person on the on the planet who can do videos. You can use Camtasia. There's probably quite a few others, but I think the importance here with with these videos is we've kind of mentioned as we're going along through this podcast is that you can make videos for your clients. You can make videos to put on the web. You know, if you want to share something with the FileMaker community, there's so many uses 
for these, you know, video recording, you know, just record your voice and your screen that you really need to have one uh, for those, especially if you're a developer, just to share information. I've had so many times when a client said, hey, can you record that on a video? Sure. Why not? I, you know, if they're going to pay you to do it, go for it. You know, give them what they want. It's- yeah, absolutely. But it's also about people these days. People stop reading. They don't like to read anymore. And unless you're a fiction reader like I am, most people want to watch a video. They want a quick, short digest. Digest. And a video is an easier way to communicate an idea. And if you make short, sharp videos that just cover one pe- one point or one feature, the chances are those will be used more by the client and the client's employees than any instruction manual you you write. And in fact, I've given up writing instruction manuals because they're a complete waste of time. Nobody reads them and they're out of date the moment you write them. And sometimes recording a video is actually faster than writing it down and has more information in it because of the, the visual aspect of it. Much faster. It is really much faster. Now, edit, editing does take time. I mean, you know, when I edit these podcasts, we take it, an hour podcast will take me three or four hours to edit it properly. So, but I'm very finicky about getting rid of gaps and ums and ahs and stuff like that. So it does take time to finish the video off, but it's a short, quick way of conveying something is you can't beat it. I just want to make a quick comment on the Camtasia. It's owned by the same company who makes Snagit. So if you're brand new to this, you could have some serious advantages by getting a Camtasia Snagit bundle, which is both programs included at one price uh, for those who are brand new to this and who really want to get in uh, with both feet first. So there's an advantage there. Right. And you can also, it also includes screencasts, which I use for storing a lot of videos that I don't want to put on YouTube. And uh, that's another third part, third product from the same company. Yes, I love Screencast. I use it all the time. It's a, it converts your video and allows you to share it uh, in a meaningful way. It does all the uh, encoding for you, so you don't have it'll play on any device. In other words, and then finally, uh, Camtasia works on Windows too, whereas ScreenFlow is a Mac only product. All, all good points. Uh, leads us into one of my favorite tools which is screen sharing software. Now, I personally use GoToMeeting. I have for several years. I, I, I can't imagine what I did before I, I had GoToMeeting, and, and, but I pay for it on a monthly basis because it's so useful. I use it daily to meet with clients, uh, and it saves time. You don't have to go and visit them. Um, not that you don't want to do that. You do that every once in a while, but most of the time, it's much easier for people not to have to drive somewhere. Um, or to have to make time, they can they can just bop onto the computer, and you can show them what you've done today on the device, and they can point out bugs to you. And and you know, screen sharing is great. And there's also I think a popular one called Zoom. Um, what do you guys use to do screen sharing? I you know I'm I'm a big GoToMeeting fan, but I've never used anything else. I use Zoom. I use Zoom all the time. I think it's absolutely superb. Um, incredibly low cost. Go to meeting is quite expensive, if I remember rightly. John, what do you pay on a monthly basis? Yeah, I think I think as a, a, pers- a professional license for Zoom is like $19 a year. And it's really inexpensive. And 
you get your own dedicated meeting ID and all of that. Now, I could be wrong about the price, but it's certainly very affordable. Go to meeting, I always thought was rather expensive. What about you, Mark? So, so I think according to today's pricing, Zoom is fourteen ninety nine per month per host. Um, but you know, you may be on a different plan, and I may also be reading this incorrectly. But it seems like it's around that. Uh, we use as a company, we use GoToMeeting. Uh, we have a combined package. See, GoToMeeting is owned by Go to Go to Connect, I believe, or um, they keep changing their name. But yeah, log me in. That's a, that's the official company name is log me in. Who owns GoToMeeting? They also own GoToWebinar. Um, they also bought the the automated phone system we use, which was Jive. So they bought Jive. So we have a bundle that packages GoToMeeting with our phone system for one low price per month, which is something we just a deal we can't refuse. So for us, we're a special case. Uh, we use GoToMeeting, but we like John. I've been using it for years. It's very very reliable. Uh, I know Zoom is very popular, um, and it is very affordable. So I think for most uh, independent developers, it seems like the, the leaning is towards Zoom. The other reason I like GoToMeeting is because it's it's the it's the small brother to GoToWebinar, which is the big brother. And occasionally here at Productive Computing, we have to either do our own webinars or we have to participate on webinars sponsored by FileMaker or Richard Carlton. And all those people use GoToWebinar for those webinars. So the familiarity as being a presenter is huge. Uh, I don't want to have to learn all the uh, a Zoom when I'm doing something really critical like a webinar. But that's, again, back to personal preference. Like we talked about base elements versus the others. It's it's GoToMeeting versus Zoom. Um, I've used Zoom, but I, I do actually prefer GoToMeeting. It's the devil I know. Well, I just looked up the pricing, and it looks like competition is good because the professional plan, which is 150 participants for GoToMeeting, is $12 a month. You can go up to 250 participants for $16 a month, and you can even go up to 3,000 participants, but it's an enterprise version. You get a call about that. I don't know what the statistics are about Zoom, but it seems like those numbers are more in line with what you're saying about Zoom. And and, it, and I believe it has changed because when I started with GoToMeeting, it was definitely 50 bucks a month. But now I'm starting to remember, oh, yeah, they did bring down the price when the LogMeIn guys bought them. And uh, this is about what I think I'm paying. I think I paid for a whole year in advance and got even a, a better deal. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it is really being competitive. Well, that's interesting to know, um, and I will certainly take another look at it because there are definitely some advantages um, that you've mentioned, Mark, including the GoToWebinar, and so why not? And also, I think it's probably, realistically, it's easier for you as a production company to justify the expense of something you know, at a higher level because you've got so many people using it. For the individual developers, John and myself, we've got to be very careful how we spend our money. I think that's fairly accurate. Yeah. Well, we have to be careful on how we spend our money, too. Well, sure. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. No, I, mean, <laughs> but, I don't mean to say you're not careful, but it's easier sure. to justify when you've got a lot of people using one system. Yeah. Well, there's a certain economy of scale when you have more people because then you can somehow divvy that out. The other thing, too, is... We were at a point where we had six GoToMeeting accounts for, you know, 10 or 15 developers. And it was, you know, a constant struggle. Uh, 
So when they bought the phone system, then we said, let's get a dedicated GoToMeeting for every employee. That literally changed our business overnight. We were able to just meet whenever we want, however we want. We also use Microsoft Teams, which has a lot of the GoToMeetings uh, capabilities built in. Uh, so when we're working with each other, we use Microsoft Teams as a way to communicate, um, which we didn't talk about here, but that's like the Slack equivalent for chatting, sharing screens, and having conferences. Yeah, I think without a doubt, this is probably the most important third-party tool if you're a serious FileMaker developer, to be able to share your screen or see a client's screen, to have a conversation with them without having to visit them. I can't, uh, I can't tell you enough about it. I use it all the time. And you really need to spend the $12 a month that it's going to cost you uh, to have that ability. And your clients will see you as a much more professional developer. You'll get things done faster, more efficiently. It's just, there's no doubt about it. You have to have it. And probably another one you probably need is some remote access tool, remote desktop sharing. Um, we have written down here uh, Microsoft Remote Desktop, which is probably the most popular. I'm coming from a Mac background. I've used Apple Remote Desktop a lot because sometimes you just need to get onto your server at an OS level and manipulate some stuff. You might have to move some files or, or get a copy of a file or off there or who knows what. They're very handy. I, I, don't, I don't use them that often, so I'll leave it up to Mark to talk about how they use it themselves. But uh, they're very useful and handy. Well, Microsoft Remote Desktop is a terrific program. Microsoft continues to invest in that. It's always being updated. And it allows you to connect to a Windows machine rather easily. Um, you can share files, things like that. So it's it's kind of the staple for us whenever we're working with AWS or a customer's machine that is Windows-based. Uh, we don't actually use Apple Remote Desktop specifically. We do use the screen sharing capability built into all Mac OSs when it comes time to remote controlling someone's Mac. Uh, we do have some use of Apple Remote Desktop internally, but we don't tend to use Apple Remote Desktop to connect to another customer's server per se. Uh, but yeah, those are essential programs and a big part of, of what we do, especially when customers are asking us to construct FileMaker Server or consult on FileMaker Server or maintain or monitor FileMaker Server. This is the main tool to do that to get onto that server, jump on, remote control it, and get, get the work done. Set up the folders you might need for, you know, uh, backups that you won't want it in the standard folder, uh, you know, install it, things like that. Yep, yep, setting up ODBC drivers, definitely maintaining the backups, configuring server, installing server, updating server, updating the OS. Um, so much of that stuff customers don't want to do, don't know how to do. In fact, even sophisticated customers who have very sophisticated IT personnel, they see FileMaker and they don't know what to do with it. So they like to have, you know, a certified FileMaker developer or a company who knows about FileMaker server to maintain and monitor their system to say, hey, can you do a health check on this? Because yeah, we know how to work with the server, but we don't really know FileMaker server and what it requires. So something as simple as turning off um, virus protection they're blind to those sort of requirements. Uh, it's so unorthor unorthodox for them to have an environment that requires things like that. So when you come in and look at somebody's server, you're using remote desktop to do that. And uh, it's essential for those things you mentioned, John. Right. It brings up a funny story. Uh, several times this has happened to me where people will 
uh, remote desktop into their FileMaker server and then launch the ad admin console from that server, which is perfectly fine, but you could have done it from your local machine also without involving remote desktop. Sure. That is funny. Yeah. Some customers don't want to share their admin console outside the local server. Uh, and it requires other firewall ports and things. So there's some argument to say, okay, well, if you log onto the server and you have admin console, but yeah, so true. Uh, for many of our servers, at least, we do allow remote access into the admin console. And it's nice to do it from the convenience of your local, your local browser rather than jumping on. Because you know what? When you log on to these servers remotely, it typically requires some form of VPN authentication, heavy-duty security. And you know what? It takes months sometimes to get that set up. And I'm talking months to get that set up for a vendor like us, an outside vendor, to, to log into a, an enterprise-level Windows server to remote control it. It's uh, it's one of the hardest things to get done when you're working with a large customer. Oh yeah, couldn't agree more on that one. That one's that one's always difficult. Looks like uh, next on our list, and we're we're getting down to the end here. We're almost at the end of this podcast, but hopefully you guys have been enjoying what we're talking about and learned a few things about some tools. But the the next one is on here, and and I put this down here. It's called Two Empowered. The number two. E-M-P-O-W-E-R. And it's a little uh, utility um, tool that searches your scripts, your tables, your fields and relationships without making a DDR. It's really cool stuff. I don't use it myself. I just was, I was researching for this. I'm like, wow, that's a really cool tool. And then I saw Wim DeCourt talking about it. He's like, okay, well, if Wim says he uses it, it must be cool. So it's it's pretty nice. It's like almost putting a search window into all those dialogues, where, which really should be there anyhow. You know, so not only can you search the script name like you could with the script workspace, but you can actually search through the entire actual script lines, and and that can be very helpful as far as finding what you're looking for with a pretty complicated system. It's very useful. Uh, I have I just used the free version of it, and. Where it's particularly useful for me is in a relationship graph where you can type the name of the table accounts and it'll find it for you and let take you straight to it. That is just incredibly useful. I wish they put a search bar in the top of the relationship graph in order to highlight and find and filter the many table occurrences that we have to sift through on large systems. Yeah, we asked Robert Holsey about that. Um, when we interviewed him, him and Rick Coleman, mm -hmm. and his answer was not that that was a bad idea. He didn't say that, but he said, what we'd rather do is fix the reason why you have to do that. Mm -hmm. And part of what they've done in, in over the last 10 years, which is really cool, is they've taken a lot of the the need for the relationship graph. Uh, in other words, you can sort a portal, right? Mm. Right at the portal level. You don't have to make, you can, you can do things like, uh, well, I'm trying to think of things you can do outside of there. Uh, anything you might've done inside a managed database, like conditional formatting, hide objects, all those things were typically done. I mean, I remember the hide object. I used to hide objects with, uh, if I can remember correctly, this is 10 years ago, it was a, uh, a relationship, a calculation and a one row portal. And it worked great, but now you don't have to put that extra relationship on there because I might have, you know, 50 objects I want to appear and disappear. That'd be 50 relationships. Right. So that was kind of his answer for it, is that, yeah, it's not that we couldn't do that, but we want to make it so that it's, that your relation graph is more uh, uncluttered. Um, and I, I, I kind of, believe in what he said and kind of don't. I mean, I get what he's doing, but I think you need both is what it comes down to. Yeah. So 
I think you need both. Yeah, unclutter it and put a search area, in. and then while you're at it, put a search area in the field section too. Yeah, here's here's my old-fashioned trick. I print the relationship graph to a PDF, and then because it's a PDF, you can do a search within a PDF of keywords. So that's another a poor man's way to get around searching the relationship graph without using the um, Empower tool. Yeah, the other uh, trick, which is not quite, it, it's a its a different, but if you use a little post-it note thing to put text on there, I don't forget what the feature's called, but you can draw a little post-it note on there. You can put one next to each section where you want to get to, and you just put a one, a two, a three, and a four inside of it. And so when you type one, since it's knowing none of your table occurrences, it's going to go right down to that section, or you type two, it goes right down to that section. And that can be handy too. I, I can't say I do it a lot, but on the more complicated systems where I'm scrolling, I'm like, where did I put that that uh, ta- that grouping of table occurrences, I can't find it. And you know, if you have a little legend at the top that says "press one to go down to invoices," "press two to go down to customers," press, you know, then it makes it a little bit easier. But I, I just don't think we should have to do these tricks. Um, and uh, you know, there shouldn't have to be a utility like to empower to to allow you to do this. But the fact is, I guess they've decided that uh, they're taking a different approach, and they'd rather have uh, you know. Uh, the approach that Robert, which is a, is a perfectly valid approach to take away the need to do that. But I, I, I think just like the script workspace, they need to add ability to search it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the old days, the relationships used to be displayed as a list. And in many ways, in many ways, that was easier in a sense. I mean, it wasn't as visual, but it was list sortable and things like that. I think it was sortable. So maybe best of both worlds. Look at it as, uh, as a map. Look at it as a list. Filter the list. Filter the map. Do a quick find. All those tools. If you know if the relationship graph is here to stay, then a few tools to make it better would would go a long way uh, to helping the developer out. You know, I like that list idea. If you could make that searchable or filterable, mm-hmm. and and then once you found the one you want, oh yeah, that's the one I want. You could click on it; and it would take you to the relationship graph where it was. That yep. would be really cool. Yep, something like that would be good. But, but now we're going off of yep. what this, this focus of this is. Yeah. It's not about what we want FileMaker to do. They got <laughs> lots of stuff and lots of people tell them what they want. Uh, let's move on to note-taking. Um, I, I have adopted taking notes of everything my client asked me to do. Um, I didn't always do that before. Um, and I won't go into the reasons why I do it because uh, it, I don't – well, maybe I will and maybe I won't. But But – what I do is I, you know, of course I like to do a requirements document and say, this is what you want. Okay. Sign here. But then inevitably what happens is there there's bugs and there's this and there that there's a new feature they want and we'll be doing a go to meeting. And what I do is I just simply take notes in a word processor uh, during that meeting so they can see what I'm talking, writing down. They can verify that's what they said. And then I also have the notes to go back and, and remember what to do that they've asked me to do. Now, the point is I just use uh, pages on the Macintosh, but there are certainly uh, note-taking software out there like uh, Evernote, um, which is a very popular one, um, and pen and paper, of course, right? Um, if you, if you want to go that old-school route, sometimes it's faster to take notes that way. Um, I don't know what you guys do uh, with your clients, how you keep track of stuff. Well, right now we use the feature in GoToMeeting, which is record. So we'll, we'll record the meeting, and I don't know if you guys have experimented with this or not, but it does a transcription of it and actually shows you color-coded by the speaker name. So it, it keeps track of who's speaking and when, 
and it color codes it and then timestamps it. So, and it's searchable. So I can go through a one hour meeting and search for the word every time they use the word uh, relationship and it would find anytime anyone sent, said the word relationship and then I could click on it and go to that part of the video. So it becomes our Bible when it comes to documenting uh, what a customer has asked for. And so many times it has saved us. But you know what? It's not so much about he said, she said. It's just as much about, oh, developer A had this meeting or our salesperson had the meeting with this customer. Play it for the developer. So now the developer can hear what the customer originally had said and wanted and what, what their vision was. And it has been, it has changed our company in the last few years when, now that we record our meetings with customers. I've recorded meetings. I did not know it had that capability. That is very cool. Yeah, that's a new feature they released over the last six months with this whole automatic transcript business. Um, I don't know if it's something specific to our account or if you would see it on your account too, John, but it creates a link. The link can be shared and then it shows you uh, who participated in the meeting and what they said. Uh, so yours is different. Yours shares to, uh, yours records and saves the recording to a server. Mine just goes to my local hard drive because I probably don't have the same plan as you. Uh, it could be the difference in plan. It could very well be the difference in plan. Yep. Okay. Any any comments, Michael, about how you, do you take notes at all or? Um, I make a lot of notes generally for my own, just personal, but I, but I tend to write them on a piece of paper, a notepad, and then I, at the end of the, when I'm finished with it, I stop, you know, I tear that page out and make sure I've made all the notes that I need to do and uh, be done with it. So you, yeah, you're old school and pen and paper. I used to do that too, and it works great. I mean, you, you need to take notes at some point to remind yourself. Um, but I've, I've since gone electronic so I can share the notes with my clients and things like that. Uh, it's very helpful. Um, for me, but you know, take a look at Evernote because it's supposed to make note taking really easy. I don't know. I, I, I'm just, I'm just. For me, I, I, I try not to deluge myself with tools that give me minimal amount of, of you know, uh, extra ability. And for me, a word processor is fine. You turn on pages and it'll make an outline for you. You know, I just start one period and then type and then hit a return and it does the two for me next time it does that it just it makes it very easy for me so i have no reason to go to anything more complex i created a little filemaker database with notes and it's just an open text field with a date the person who was on the meeting and the subject of the meeting and the category of the meeting and that way it's sort of my little uh searchable note system in filemaker that i use when i'm sometimes wanting to get the high points of a particular topic I don't know why I don't know why I never did that. Yeah, I you guys are filemaker guys. I would have. I know. <laughs> I was the crazy guy at DevCon who used to do his slides in FileMaker. <laughs> oh, I remember those type of things. Yeah, I can see that. Right, because I didn't want to switch between my my slides and and demonstrating FileMaker. I was I was just within FileMaker the whole time, and so it was easy. I could do my slides that way. But uh, and so that's why I'm so surprised I didn't think of that. I should have a a note taking database in FileMaker, and probably after I get off this podcast, I'm going to design one because I love it. Oh, that's good. Well, it's nice. It's it's your breadcrumbs. And then you know the exact date and time you spoke to somebody about whatever it is you spoke about. And so much easier. I mean, I'm, I've got all these files from meetings with customers and, and they're all dated and they should be easy to find, but I still have to remember, you know, where they are and find them. And, and if they're in FileMaker, I can make 
all kinds of features in there to search it and pull stuff up and reports, whatever I want to do. I, I love it. So, and if you need a good part maker developer to help with that, John, you know, you got my number. <laughs> Problem is, I don't pay a lot. I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, I don't pay. I pay zero. <laughs> but if you want to help, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so we're on to our last in one of my more important tools, which is a password manager. Now, there's lots of products out there, LastPass. Um, I sell one on my website, the one that I actually use. Uh, you know, they're, they're very handy to have because there's so many passwords and so many regulations that it seems like you can't make the same password for any two systems. It's, it's just impossible. So I have to have them in here to look them up. And, and it's a simple, you, you're a FileMaker developer. You can make your own. If you really don't want to make your own, then go find uh, some product out there in the market like LastPass. Yeah, password, the bane of all our lives. I use one password. It runs on Windows and Mac, and it's very much like a LastPass in terms of how it works. I've used LastPass a little bit, but 1Password is what I use. And then what I like about that, that's what I use for my personal life and a little bit of business. But what I do is we put it, I sync that to Dropbox, and then I have my wife use that same bucket for her 1Password. So we're using the same bucket so that her passwords are now available in my repository and vice versa just in case and now it's it's so great because i'll say uh oh is that on your netflix account whatever it is that's a bad example but what let's say her amazon account i can log in as her if i need to just to cover each other's bases and it's really awesome to have to know that the family is under one umbrella in in the event that someone is not available you know there's this cool thing called filemaker and, and years yeah. ago, it, it allowed to have multiple people access to the same database. Right. I'm just so but disappointed I, in you, Mark. <laughs> well, there, I, it's a, you'll do a notes thing and I'll do a password. Thing. Right. There you go. <laughs> well, I already did it. Let's just trade, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, one thing I'll say about passwords is I've, is I've probably come up with a, uh, a password that I always use as a backdoor for every solution I create. It's not one that I ever give to the client. Uh, I put it in there so in case the client and they inevitably lose their password, even though I told them to file it and, and make sure you don't lose it, I, I always have a backdoor. And so it's the same password. So it's the same username, makes it easy. If you haven't considered this or thought of this, you really need to do this um, you know, so that you can always get into a solution no matter what they've done. And like, of course, they can delete that password out of there. Um, but, you know, it's a good idea to, to have that backdoor password. So even five years later, you go, hey, probably this, because this is what I always use. You know, people come back to you and ask you for those. So um, that's another way to, to avoid having a password manager is, is to, to really try to get a consistent password. Um, and with FileMaker, it's pretty easy to do on if you're creating solutions. Yep, I like that idea a lot. Customers will be notorious for forgetting the password or not really, you know, people change in companies. They don't, it's not always the same developer or personnel that you're dealing with. So the one person will leave and then they took the password with them. They don't remember. They call you, what's the password? Well, you don't know any of their own passwords, but you probably have your backdoor password available if they didn't delete it, like you said. And yeah, that can save the day in a lot of cases. So there are a lot of tools out there for FileMaker. 
and we've covered our favorites and we want to hear about your favorites in the comments, but you can also do your own research. Just go into your web browser and use your favorite search engine. Um, I always say Google, but you know, it's up to you and, and just put in FileMaker developer tools and take a look what's out there. Pay attention to the forums, see what other people are using, you know, attend user groups and DevCon and, and you'll find out all kinds of little tools that people are using. You know, sometimes they're old tools, sometimes they're new tools, some, you know, they just got on the market, uh, it, but they can definitely help you make your development more efficient. So try to look for those things that, that are game changers uh, that really make life easy. Like for me, again, um, go to meeting is probably my ultimate game changer as far as how I do business. Any particular comments on what your favorite tools are, guys, before we get head out of here? Uh, actually, my favorite tool is one we haven't mentioned at all. It's called Typinator. And I use that to store snippets of text or, you know, like, I just FC when I type FC, it automatically changes that to get found count. Uh, GMC last message choice, get last message choice. So it saves me a lot of typing and I use it for code segments and also blocks of text. And it's fantastic tool. I use it all day, every day. Amazing piece of software. Yeah. And the key there is you need to make sure that you come up with good acronyms that wouldn't be used for something else. But that's not too hard. No. Well, what I do is I basically include a, a tilde before every abbreviation. And ah. that means you're not really going to run the risk of typing something that will trigger it. So typeinator, T-Y-P-E or just... T-I-P-I-N-A-T-O-R. Cool. And it's very inexpensive and it's absolutely uh, worth a thousand times what you pay for it. Right. And I think they already have a predefined FileMaker list available do. that you wow. can download with Typeinator. Yeah, they, they do. It's very useful. And you mark any favorite, what's your favorite tool would you have to say? That you yeah, I do. I do use Typeinator and I keep my emojis in Typeinator. So if I want a smiley face, I can just type in certain acronyms and sunglasses, smiley face and all that when all the comments that I do. So I use Typeinator for that. Um, my favorite tool, well, my favorite tool is going to be ScreenFlow because I use it to record and explain things. But I would say it's right up there with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is great. You can help your parents fix their computer because inevitably, us computer guys, we have to we help to ha have to help those around us who aren't as savvy. So yeah, GoToMeeting comes in very handy for those occasions, as well as obviously day-to-day -day business. So yeah, I'd have to agree with you there, John. I think it's one of my favorite tools. I have to say my favorite tool of all, though, without any hesitation, is FileMaker. Ah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so politically correct <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> Maybe politically correct, but it's also true. It is just an incredible product. And I don't think it gets the credit that it really deserves because it's amazing what they've done with it. Yeah, it, it is an amazing tool, what you can build with it and what it does. So let's uh, cut this podcast short or long, whichever one you call it, uh, two and a half hours. It'll probably come down to a smaller uh, recording. But uh, but yeah, I think we've covered just about everything, informed you just about, about everything we can. So my name is John Mark Osborne, and thanks for listening to Fireside FileMaker.
I'm Michael Rashad. Again, thanks for listening. And Mark LaRochelle, thank you for joining us once more. We'd love to have you here. And uh, and please send us a bill for your time. <laughs> thanks, guys. Always a pleasure to be with you guys on this. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Fireside Filemaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.